passage that we looked at this morning, Genesis 37, verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. So if you would take out your Bibles and turn there with me. All right. This is what the Word of God says to us. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Jacob, I'm sorry, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Well, I mentioned this morning that our study of these four verses can fit under the title Pride and Prejudice. This morning we saw the prejudicial treatment of Jacob towards Joseph, how he clearly treated Joseph with a favoritism, uh, with a more intense love than he showed to the other brothers. Uh, Had Joseph's brothers been humble men, uh, though themselves they might have been hurt by the way their father flaunted his love for Joseph, they still might have rejoiced with Joseph and the good things that were happening to Joseph. They, they might have been able to celebrate with Joseph, his new standing in the family as chief heir and first among the brothers. But Joseph's brothers, as we saw this morning, were not humble men. They were prideful men and wicked men. And, and therefore, the way they responded to their father's favoritism was with deep resentment and with a deep hatred of this 11th brother, Joseph. Now, just to remind you, we did see already the reasons for Jacob's favoritism, uh, as well as the expression of Jacob's favoritism in the giving of this robe. And there is no doubt that Jacob and Joseph enjoyed a special connection as men of faith, uh, men within whose hearts there beat true love for God. Uh, This was expressed in Jacob's decision to make Joseph ahead of of all his brothers. Um, This robe, as we said this morning, it may have been colorful, we don't know, but it was almost certainly of great length, was the symbol of that decision. Now, a defense can be made for Jacob's choice to place Joseph ahead of his brothers, but we would be hard-pressed to defend the way Jacob went about it. Uh, The text seems to suggest that Jacob not only loved Joseph more than his brothers, but that he made sure everyone knew it through his words and through his actions. In other words, we get the impression that Jacob was somewhat careless towards the impact that his special love for Joseph was having on the rest of his sons. Jacob failed to love his other sons well. He failed to care about the the well-being of their souls as he expressed his favor towards Joseph. And so what we're going to look at tonight is the result of Jacob's favoritism. So what I want us to do is, is put ourselves first in the shoes of these other brothers. And I want you to imagine 
For example, this scenario. You're at Thanksgiving dinner with your family. And you've all come together for the Thanksgiving feast. You're the oldest, perhaps, of multiple siblings. Just pretend you are, that you're the oldest of multiple siblings. You've always longed to have your father's approval. You've always longed to hear your father say how much he loves you and how proud he is of you. And just before your father at the head of the table is about to to carve the turkey, he declares that he has an announcement to make. He informs the family that he has just finished writing his will. And before he dies, he has decided to leave half of his inheritance to one of your younger brothers. And you and the rest of your siblings, you get to split up the rest. But this particular younger sibling will have priority, will have the greater amount. Your dad then informs the family that when he is gone, you are to look to this younger sibling for leadership and guidance. He then asks this younger sibling of yours to come and to sit in his seat at the head of the table. Your father asks him to carve the turkey. He asks your younger sibling to, to lead the family in the blessing. As you sit and watch this father whom you have longed to have his love for so long, he, he gives this other sibling a, a warm embrace. He smiles at him. He tells him how much he loves him and how proud he is of him. And meanwhile, you're left to sit and to watch. Now I wonder, what would be happening in your heart in a moment like that? What temptations would you be facing? And is this not how Joseph's brothers must have felt every time they saw Joseph wearing that robe? Every time he approached with that special robe, immediately a fresh reminder, oh yeah, my father loves him, is proud of him, has set him above the rest of us. Look at what verse 4 tells us. Verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So this verse informs us concerning two sins that Joseph's brothers fell into because of the favoritism that they witnessed. First, we are told they hated Joseph. They hated him. This this word is often used in the Old Testament in contrast to the word loved. For example, we're told that Jacob loved his wife Rachel, but we're also told that he hated Leah. Sometimes this word hatred is used in a a passive sense. That is, sometimes the Bible seems to use this word hatred as as if it simply means not to love someone. But other times, like here, this word is used in a clearly active sense. That is, there is a real bitterness, there is a real hostility in the heart towards this other person. So, for example, listen to how this same word is used in Leviticus 19. Listen to this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
And so in those verses, hating someone is set alongside taking vengeance and bearing a grudge. And it's set in contrast to love. God says, do not hate love. And so it's sort of antithetical. It's the opposite of love. And that is what is in the hearts of Joseph's brothers towards him. Even though Joseph is their flesh and their blood, they have begun to despise him. They do not love him. They carry this grudge against him wherever they go. And it wasn't that Joseph had done anything wrong. In fact, the problem was that Joseph appeared to be so righteous, right? So much so that it, it, it shamed them in the sight of their father. Here they were, and there were all these things that they've done that were wicked and that were, that were ungodly, but it wouldn't make a big difference if they were all that way. But no, here's Joseph. And he has to be the one that does everything right. He has to be the one that seems so godly and so righteous, even trusting in the same God, walking with the same God as their father. And so it shames them and casts them in an even darker light before their father's eyes. Joseph was an example of someone who was salt and light in his own family. And Joseph's godliness, rather than bringing the brothers to repentance, only caused his brothers to hate him and to resent him. The Bible says that those who are in darkness hate the light. In fact, Joseph is, in a sense here, pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the truly righteous one, the light of the world, who came to save people, and he was hated by the very ones he came to save because their deeds were evil, and those in darkness hate the light. Now, one reason that we need to emphasize this hatred of Joseph's brothers for him is that this chapter emphasizes their hatred. Uh, Verse 4 is just the first of three times in this chapter that this word is used, that we are informed of their hatred. Look quickly down at verse 5. Verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Go down to verse 8. Verse 8. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And so we might picture a, a pot of water on the stove. And the water gradually becomes hotter and hotter until it's boiling and it boils over. The brothers already knew that their father favored Joseph. Even before, even before we get to verse 3, there's already some hostility in their hearts that's, that's beginning to rise. But the giving of this robe, well, that only increased the temperature. It only made their resentment of Joseph worse. And then the dreams that we're going to study next week, they're going to be another step in fueling the fire. The temperature gets hotter and hotter. And finally, when these brothers are tending their flocks far away from home, far away from their father's watchful eye, and suddenly, who comes over the horizon? But Joseph, sent to check in on them by the father. Well, that will be the final straw. The animosity that Joseph's brothers have towards him will escalate throughout this chapter until it erupts in full-blown violence. But already in verse 4, that hatred is being expressed. Because our verse gives us a second sin, namely, that the brothers refuse to treat Joseph peaceably, 
or courteously. Now, do you see that in verse 4? We're told they could not speak peaceably to him. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, that we're told that they could not say shalom to Joseph. Remember, shalom means peace. And it's the way that Hebrews greet one another. In fact, it's a, it's a common greeting among the Jews as far back as we can go in their history. Uh, even Israelites, who were complete strangers from one another, if they happened to meet each other, they would greet each other with shalom. This greeting reminded Jews that they were brothers and sisters, that, that there was to be peace between them. And so the fact that Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they could not even speak shalom to him, meant that they had less affection for their brother than they would have had even for strangers outside their immediate family. In fact, notice the word could. The word could. It was not that Joseph's brothers would not speak peaceably to him. We're actually told that they could not. This is the language of inability. The language of, of slavery. And this is the way bitterness and hatred work. When we are overcome by these sins, they take control over us. Sin is the slave master. We become the slaves. Anger took such a hold on the hearts of Joseph's brothers that they were now incapable of saying shalom, peace, to their brother. This reminds us of John 6, 44, where Jesus very famously said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And we, we read that verse and we wonder, what does Jesus mean when he says that no one can come to him? I mean, all, all we have to do is see our need of him and submit ourselves to him, call out on his name. Anybody can do that. Anybody has the capability to see their need and to, to call out in, in humble faith. Why does Jesus say that people can't? Well, the answer is the same as why Joseph's brothers could not speak peaceably to him. It wasn't that they couldn't speak the words. Their mouths worked fine. Their tongues worked fine. The problem was that sin hardens the human heart in pride. And sin so affects our desires. Sin so affects our wills that we become incapable of being willing to do something. Joseph's brothers could physically speak peaceably to him, but they could not do it because sin had bound their wills so that it was, they were bound to do the pleasure of sin and sin would not let them speak peaceably to him. And so also the natural human heart is so fallen that the people have the physical ability to humble themselves and call out on Christ in a heartfelt, submissive way. They never will truly do so apart from a work of God's sovereign grace. People love their sin too much and sin's pleasure has become theirs. And thus the only way that a person ever comes to Christ is by having their heart changed, having their wills set free from this bondage to sin. People have to be made willing by the Holy Spirit if they are to truly come to Him. And that's what Jesus meant when He says that, that people cannot come to Him unless the Father draws. Well, in the same way, these brothers are now so hardened by their hatred of Joseph that nothing less than a fundamental change of their hearts by the Spirit of God will cause them to repent 
and to be reconciled to Joseph. Friends, at this point in the story, we see no evidence that these brothers will ever like or even love their brother Joseph. Everything we see seems like that's impossible. Any uh, family psychologist would look at this family and say, they just need to find a way to be at peace with one another because they're never going to really love each other. Right? They're never really going to be the same and united. And yet that's exactly what these chapters are about. We're going to watch, between Genesis 37 and Genesis 50, we're going to watch God do a supernatural work We're going to see the means that he uses, and we're going to watch miracles take place in the hearts of these brothers. But for right now, they are steeped in hatred of Joseph, so much so that they won't even say, Shalom, peace to him. Now, let me be very clear. Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph did not cause these brothers to sin in that way. Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph tempted the brothers towards those sins. But had the brothers been righteous men, they would have responded differently to their father's careless flaunting of his love for Joseph. The chief problem here was not Jacob, and the chief problem here was not Jacob's favoritism. It was the wicked hearts of the brothers, the same wicked hearts that we all by nature have. But Jacob's actions of putting such favoritism out there towards Joseph and making it so blatantly obvious, well, it put forward a powerful temptation towards hatred and resentment. Parents, if we play favorites with our children, if we act the way Jacob did, we cannot be surprised if anger and hostility begin to appear in the lives of our children as well. We are, putting, we are not causing them to sin, but we are putting before them a powerful temptation that really nothing less than the sheer grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit will be able to keep them from falling into that same hatred and hostility. Um, remember how Isaac and Rebekah had two sons. Oh, yeah. I know where you are. Remember uh, Joseph's grandparents, right? So we're thinking here about Isaac and Rebekah. And they had these two sons, Jacob and Esau. Isaac favored Esau. Rebekah favored Jacob. What was the result of favoritism in that family? Well, the result was sin and sin and more sin. We have Jacob taking advantage of Esau. We have Rebekah and Jacob actively working to deceive Isaac and steal Esau's blessing. We have Esau's bitterness towards his family that sends him running off to marry the very kind of pagan woman that his father and mother said, please don't marry. When, when parents play favorites, it is a recipe for disaster. And often many other sins will result. Joel Beakey says this, playing favorites inevitably, inevitably leads to family conflicts. We should not favor one child who excels over another. We must not favor our oldest or youngest children over others. Our children easily pick up on such favoritism and it creates fertile ground for the growth of hostility enmity, and bitterness in the years to come. 
And I think the book of Genesis, through many of the examples we have in the book of Genesis, we see that borne out as true. Beaky also says this, and I want to quote this because I think it's very perceptive and it's something I've seen, out, I've seen play out uh, time and time again in families. Uh, he says this, A child who is less favored is likely to hold a grudge against a favored child, while the favored child will often exploit his or her status. This is just a fact of life because they are all fallen creatures. So the less favored child will likely rebel in teen years and then turn to other things or other people to accommodate for his or her lack of acceptance. Young people often don't make wise decisions concerning where to go find acceptance because they view things from an emotional perspective. And whatever meets that emotion's needs, they'll reach out for. And therefore, the favored child is likely to have a negative view of his or her brother or sister. Put simply, favoritism breeds division in families. And often this division can last for a lifetime. So, I want to get very practical here and say a few words about parents and this subject of favoritism. And I am speaking directly here, particularly to those who who are parents, but I think this will be helpful to all of us as we consider these things. Parents, be very careful about the way you give praise to one of your children in the presence of your other children. We need to remember that all children are unique. And that while some are more gifted in one area than another, each child is fearfully and wonderfully made. And so there is a delicate balancing act that must go on here. If one child is clearly better at sports than the other, we should not act like this is not true. We should not convince all our children that they're all great athletes just because one truly is and we don't want the others to to feel left out. The fact is, people are not equal in every area, but we are all equal in dignity. We are all equal as bearers of God's image. So when we praise our children for their accomplishments, we need to be careful, we need to be honest about differing abilities, while also affirming the dignity of every child. So for example, suppose one child has just received an award maybe for an academic achievement, maybe for an athletic achievement. At the dinner table, it is absolutely appropriate to tell that child before the others how grateful you are for his or her hard work and what they've accomplished. But you need to be sensitive to the needs of all your children at the table. When they receive an award, did you respond the same way? We must be careful not to make the mistake of trying to make all of our children like one of them. So, for example, if if one child is an astounding piano player, we don't say to the rest, well, you know, I don't know why the rest of you can't be like Sally. Wish you could could be like her. That would be a terrible thing to say. Because it immediately says to to, to the children that you esteem Sally and her gifts more than you esteem them and, and theirs. Maybe you care a lot about sports, even more than you care about academics. First, I would suggest you need to check your priorities. But second, if if that's you, do you make a bigger deal about your child who is more athletic than maybe you do about your brainier child or vice versa? Do you esteem your brainier child above those in your family who maybe have other gifts? 
What it boils down to is this. Parents, do all of your children know that they are equally loved and esteemed and valued by you? Do each of your children receive the attention they need, the care for their souls that they need from you? We also need to be careful in how we speak to others about our children, especially in the presence of our children. What does it say to a child if you have company over in your home and you spend a great deal of time bragging on this one child while ignoring the rest? You should see Johnny play baseball. He is fantastic. The coach says he has real promise. Come here, let me, let me show you Johnny's trophies. And meanwhile, Sally sits nearby and she's overhearing all of this and not a word is said in regards to her. Now, parents, we need to be sensitive about these kinds of things. Now, we could drive ourselves crazy trying to treat our kids equally in every way. Okay, uh, We're not going to count the number of peas to make sure every child has the same number of peas on the plate. Right? Now, one helpful way, then, to help your children know that you love them and that you value them is to teach them well. Teach them well about the sovereignty of God and families. Make sure your children know that you believe in a God who is fully in control and who has wisely given you the exact children He desires for you to have. That it is God who gives to us our children and that He providentially sculpts our families precisely the way He wants them. And when we understand this, we can say with absolute certainty that every child is important, Every child has a meaningful role to play, and we value and cherish each one of them in their role in our family. So do your children see this? Do they understand where they fit in your family? Do they see that it is because of your love for God and your trust in Him that you value them and care for them? If you've talked to them about these things, it will help them not to be overly sensitive concerning issues of, am I being treated fairly? Or not. Now, by the way, that's, that can be a real problem. Uh, sometimes children, even adult children, can find favoritism where it's not, right? Um, pride in our hearts can cause us to be hurt by people even when they did not intend to hurt us in any way. For example, one child can get it in his head that he is unloved even when this is not true. And I think we often see this along gender lines. That is, in many families, and this is not true for everyone, but in many families, I think fathers find it easier to be more affectionate towards their daughters than they are towards their sons. And I think in many families, mothers find it easier to be more affectionate to their sons than they do to their daughters. And so it's easy maybe for the sons to think, oh, well, my father really must love my sisters more than me, when that's not the case at all. The father just maybe doesn't know as well how to relate to his sons. And the daughter may think of her mother, well, my mom loves my brothers more than me, when that's not the case at all. It's just a difference in the way it's expressed. And so we must be on guard that we in our pride do not jump to the conclusion that one of our family members is more loved than we um, because of the way we're thinking. Instead, we ought to always be humble. 
we ought to always be forbearing. And here's the most important point. Ultimately, we should find our satisfaction and our contentment in Christ. In Christ. Let me make one more point practically along these lines. This time I'm speaking directly to children, both to young children and adult children. We need to be sensitive to the souls of our brothers and sisters. When we accomplish something, do we rub it in the face of our siblings? Or do we try our best to be humble about it and not to tempt our siblings towards jealousy or hostility? Have you ever considered how your successes and accomplishments in life could be the means of causing your siblings to stumble into envy or into hatred or into bitterness? How many siblings go their separate ways after mom and dad are out of the picture because one can't stand to be around the other? Children, do you often think about how your brother or sister feels? Do you ever put yourself in their shoes to consider what they are experiencing? Does it make you sad when your brother or sister is sad? And when your brother or sister accomplishes something, are you able to rejoice with them? Are you able to be excited with them? We are called to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And our neighbors absolutely includes our siblings, our brothers and sisters. We're to love them the way we love ourselves. And that begins when our children are young. And so parents, are you teaching your children to care about what's happening in the lives of their siblings? Are you teaching your children to even pray with and for one another? Are you doing what you can to see that the hearts of your children are knit together in unity and love for one another. The Bible gives us many examples of non-exemplary sibling relationships. I mean, think about the first brothers in the Bible. The older one murdered the younger one. Isaac, Ishmael, strained relationship at best. Jacob and Esau went through great strife And though they were eventually reconciled, we have no evidence that they were ever close. In fact, we know where they lived, they were not close at all. Um, The Bible does give us some examples of positive sibling relationships. So think think of James and John, right? How often do we hear those two brothers presented together in the Scriptures, almost as if they were were one? Uh, These brothers worked together. They followed Christ together. They were part of the same intimate group of disciples. They were joined together in the same mission to glorify God. And so it is this kind of closeness that we should want to foster. So that even if our siblings do end up living thousands of miles away from us, we want there to always be a true bond of love between us and our brothers and sisters. Now, the great thing about this story of Joseph and his brothers is that though at this point the relationship is very broken and full of sin, by the end of the story we are truly going to see these brothers united together. Joseph will be among them, and he will be the head of the family. And he will take care of the brothers, and he will provide for them and their families. When Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers are going to have a moment of fear. Is Joseph now going to get revenge on us? Is Joseph now going to get us back for how wickedly we treated him all those years ago? 
Well, instead, we're told that Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In fact, as far as we can tell, these brothers came to the end of their lives with true peace and true love uniting their hearts. Now, what this means is that there is hope even for our most strained sibling relationships. There is hope for families that are divided by favoritism. And that hope is found ultimately in being forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins and then being able to forgive those around us, even our family members, for the ways they may have hurt us in the past. Now, we've seen the reasons for Jacob's favoritism. We've seen the expression of Jacob's favoritism. And we've considered the results of Jacob's favoritism. We've been warned against this sin, and now we're ready to move on to our next verses for next week. But before we do, we must not miss the deeper significance of these first four verses. See the picture. We have a father who expects his son to live righteously. None of them do, except for one. When the others see the godliness of their brother and how the father loves him, they hate him, so much so that they plot to kill him. And yet through their evil deeds against this righteous one, salvation comes to them. This whole story is a shadow of redemption. Just like in this story, we are those created to live righteously before God. But just like those ten brothers, we have gone our own way. We have lived wickedly. We have been unrighteous. We have been sinful. But Jesus is the one who has come in the midst of our darkness and lived the way we fail to live. He is the beloved son of his father. He is the righteous one, the holy one. Jesus was true, pure light. And because of this, we as the world hated him. We rejected Him. We hated Him so much that we put Him on a cross. The world wanted to do away with Jesus for the same reason that Joseph's brothers wanted to do away with Him. Darkness does not like light. Envy, hatred, resentment. This is what motivated Joseph's attackers. This is what motivated Jesus' attackers. But just as God used the sin of Joseph's brothers to bring him to a place where Joseph could save their lives. So God used the murder of Jesus to save all sinners who will see their need and come to him. Friends, we will later see these same brothers come humbly to Joseph. They will be penitent, they will be helpless, and they will cast themselves upon Joseph's mercy. And Joseph will save their lives. In the same way that we have all sinned against Christ, if we humble ourselves, if we come to Him in all of our sorrow and desperation and cast ourselves upon His mercy, He will save us. We will find that He is a strong and that He is a willing Savior. And so Joseph points us to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who by His death accomplished atonement for our sins and is now exalted at the right hand of God, saving all who will come to Him by faith. So I pray that we will live each and every day by faith. Amen? Let's pray.